Hey everybody, before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live show coming up. We will be back at Maya Cinemas on Thursday, May 23rd for Furiosa, the latest in the Mad Max series. We are so excited for this one. Joining me to talk about it, we've got Sam Novak, Shahab Zargari, and Tony Gonzalez. A great lineup. It's going to be an awesome movie. We are so excited to talk about it. So make sure to check the show notes. There are opportunities to win tickets. You could also buy tickets. And we hope to see you there Thursday, May 23rd, 6 p.m. at Maya Cinemas for Furiosa. Right, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. And today on the show, it is a special episode. It is our top 10 movies of 2021. We are taking a look back at some of our favorites from yet another really strange year. Two weird ones in a row, and who knows, looks like 2022 might be another one, but I guess we'll find out as we get further into the year. But joining me again, as they have the last couple of years, it is Josh Bell and Jason Harris from Awesome Movie Year, the other movie podcast that I produce that hopefully you are subscribed to. Uh, But we have a great conversation coming up. Very little, if any, overlap between our picks, so a lot of movies get discussed in this conversation it is a long one and we're going to get into that in a second so before we do though i want to remind you as always to make sure you're subscribed to piecing it together wherever you listen to podcasts we are of course on apple podcasts and spotify and pocket Casts and all the big podcast apps you can rate and review us over on apple podcasts or spotify or Podchaser or good pods and we really do appreciate your five-star ratings you can follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where I'm sure we'll all be arguing about these picks in the coming weeks. And last but not least, we have the Patreon, the Produced by David Rosen Patreon, where I post bonus and advanced content from Piecing It Together, from Awesome Movie Year, and from my music career. So lots of great stuff over there. Patreon.com slash Rosen. Check it out. So... Let's get into this conversation and talk about all of our favorite movies of 2021. All right, guys, it's finally time to talk about our favorite movies of 2021. And joining me again, as they did last year, it is Josh Bell and Jason Harris from Awesome Movie Year. How's it going, guys? It's it's uh, it's. 2022 <laughs> we're still alive are we i think we've done this this is our uh third year in a row doing yeah this together. yeah something it's it's been a, a long-standing tradition now. yeah i mean it's it's fun to do it with you guys it three completely differing opinions uh makes for an interesting list of movies i think by the end of these years of so many movies i mean we were just talking about before we started like how many we're trying to like squeeze in so we can kind of get as big of a uh, list together as we can but it's hard there's so many movies yeah and i'll jump in here and say this has been a extremely disappointing year for movies for oh, me boy. not to say that we're not going to talk about good movies but even my top 10 list in past years i don't know how many of them would have made the list mm. Yeah, I mean, I did feel like for me in this period, 
that you're talking about where I was trying to catch up on a lot of notable movies, a lot of the movies that I anticipated liking or that had been highly acclaimed, I end up being ended up being disappointed in when I watched them. Mm-hmm. But I do think, um, you know, for me that my list, I'm confident that those are all good movies that I would really highly recommend. And then there's enough that I would have added more, you yeah. know, that I could have gone beyond that. But I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you, Jason. I, I, do, I do think that overall the quality of at least what I ended up seeing um, was maybe not as good this year. But maybe there's just it just the movies that are left on my list were the ones that I should have seen because those would be the great ones. And, and I'll and I'll talking. say like to to kind of combine with with what both of you are saying, I found that most of the movies that are on most I mean, I've got some of the the popular ones on my top ten list, but a lot of the movies that are on most critics top ten list are more in my eleven to twenty or even down to thirty range on my list this year. I feel like my top ten is just a uh it's chaos. It's it's a very strange list of movies, but you know, it's it's my personal list. So, you know, it is what right. it is. Yeah. And that's okay. And I know, you know, Dave, we did the the half year list. Mm-hmm. And if if anyone listened to that, you're gonna hear a lot of repeating from me because yeah. <laughs> for whatever reason the the movies from the later part of the year just didn't didn't do it for me as much or they didn't stick with me. You know, I've had a chance for months to remember what was you know, the movies that I watched earlier in the year that really have stuck with me. And uh, that hasn't been the case or I haven't it been, hasn't been able to be the sure, case sure. later this year. So Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, um, before we get to our top tens this time around, I kind of want to throw the honorable mention in first. Let's just get our honorable mentions out there in the open and then we will get to our actual top ten. So let's start with you, Josh. What do you have for an honorable mention? Well, I wanted to mention a documentary, uh, and I, I know you guys in the past have done a specific best documentaries episode that that may or may not be happening this mm-hmm. year, but um, I will not participate either way. So I wanted to mention the documentary Listening to Kenny G, which, uh, as we've established on Awesome Movie Year, I tend to not be particularly into music documentaries, even when I like the music. Um, they don't typically do that much for me. But Listening to Kenny G is a fascinating film. Uh, and part of why it's fascinating is because whether you like Kenny G or hate Kenny G, it, it kind of encompasses all of that. And it's, it's about the idea of what constitutes taste, what does it mean to like music or dislike it and why, who gets to decide what music is good and what music is not good. And it's also an examination of Kenny G himself and his career and, and a really well put together kind of um, standard music documentary that tells you the whole story of his career and his success. And he's a fascinating person to watch talk. So the director, Penny Lane, I feel like has done something really impressive there with the music documentary form. And there were a bunch of music documentaries this year, Velvet Underground and Sparks, for example, that were the Billie Eilish one that were all highly acclaimed. But to me, this was the best of those, the best documentary I saw this year, and and close to one of the best movies overall. So listening to Kenny G. Well, Dave, I'll jump in because we are planning on doing that documentary uh, episode with our top fives probably in about a month or so. We're going to let it breathe for a little. Mm-hmm. But um, I am definitely looking forward to that, Josh, and uh, Penny Lane's follow-up about Zamfir, Master of the Pan Flute. Oh, wait, that's not a thing. So, <laughs> But no, this has been... Um, 
Like, I mean, you know, this, uh, th- this whole music box thing that Bill Simmons has created, a lot of people like the uh, Woodstock one, you know, I thought that just showed how annoying uh, white dudes were in 1999. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, this was a very good year for music documentaries. Awesome. Well, uh, Jason, what do you have for your uh, honorable mention? My honorable mention goes to Steven Soderbergh's No Sudden Move, which came out over the summer on HBO Max. It got Soderbergh back into that hard-boiled crime caper, uh, just kind of slow, burny thing that he does so well with characters. Um, You know, the kind of not as funny as Out of Sight, but in that same line. And it didn't all come together for me, but there was so much good stuff in there. It made me want him to just dig deeper into that well. Still need to watch that movie. I I know I've heard a lot of great things about it, but I have not gotten to it. I will definitely have more to say about that movie later, but um, yeah, we'll leave it at that. But did you agree with my assessment? Mostly, yes. All right. Well, my honorable mention, I decided to cheat a little bit, guys, uh, because I went with a movie that's technically a 2020 movie, but really what are release dates anymore? Uh, The only way to have seen this movie in 2020 is to go to the movie theater unvaccinated. So to me, that doesn't count as an actual 2020 release. It is The Kid Detective, which is one of my favorite movies I watched this year. Came out on VOD in 2021. Uh, It is just so funny. It's so dark. It stars Adam Brody as a kind of emotionally stunted former kid detective who's just kind of riding along on his early success, but is kind of forced to grow up after he gets his first real adult case as a detective. And it's, uh, I I just love this movie. Josh and I covered it here on the show. And I think it kind of got buried in this weird, you know, between years, you know, pandemic thing. And and I hope more people see it. I hope it kind of gets a little bit of a cult classic status. I'm going to look forward to that. It's Dave, it's interesting you mentioned that because I just put out my list of like, Top 10 movies I watched for the first time in 2021 from other years. Mm-hmm. And my number one was The Climb, which would have been number one last year had I seen it, or at 2020 had I seen it then. But uh, yeah, you're right. These release dates are becoming more mishmash, but that's okay. So it's good that you're giving some uh, uh, notice to something I, I'm looking forward to seeing now. Nice. Yeah, that was a very good film. And yeah, I think both Kid Detective and The Climb were released in theaters in 2020 when not very many people were going to theaters. And, you know, the movies that came out in theaters at that time, really, um, people didn't really pay attention to what they were. Yeah, burying a movie is, in theaters is such a weird thing to say, but that's basically right, what it was. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's start our list then. Let's go with number 10. Josh, what do you got? Well, my number 10 movie is a movie that I think uh, we'll hear more about from Dave uh, <laughs> later on. So, uh, but uh, I, I I liked it very much. And that's Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. It's, I think probably, you know, we were talking about the the sort of conventional picks or whatever. I think this is the one movie on my list that is the most uh, common that I've seen on a lot of top 10 lists from a lot of critics. Um, and I think deservedly so. It's It's a great, really entertaining hangout kind of movie. It's a bit shaggy and it's a bit unfocused. And to me, um, after a while, it kind of, you know, passes the two hour mark and maybe it got a little too much of that. But the characters are so enjoyable to spend time with. 
uh, Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman are so good as these both you know young people who don't really know what to do with their lives and are kind of figuring themselves out in this uh, early 1970s San Fernando Valley that it, it's great to spend time with them even when you're like what is happening it's a very episodic kind of story but it captures the vibe really well of that time and that place which of course Paul Thomas Anderson is very familiar with having grown up in that a time and place um, a lot of really fun supporting performances. Everybody talks about Bradley Cooper as John Peters, which of course is he's hilarious. But Sean Penn and Christine Abersall, um, all of these uh, kind of little almost cameo performances as real people or versions of real people. Um, it's just a nice movie to spend time with. So yeah, that's my number 10 licorice pizza. Hey Josh, you left out my favorite of the cameos, Tom Waits. What a rocket booster he comes in as. Oh, He's yeah. great. Yeah. Him and, and, and Sean Penn play off each other very well, kind of goading each other to this ridiculous, uh, motorcycle stunt. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, the woman who played the agent whose name escapes me, was also a very, uh, Harriet, Harriet Sansom Harris. Yes. Yeah. That's another great, like kind of single scene performance. She's so good. Film. This, this would be an 11 through 20 for me. It's a very good movie. Um, why do they run so much? I mean, I think it's part of their exuberant, you know, yeah, yeah, it's, it's that, or they're, they're always, they're always trying to get somewhere and never getting there, you know, like emotionally and thematically that that's how I can interpret it. You got to think back to a time when we were actually full of life and not uh, just beaten down by everything else that's happened, you know? I don't think I was ever there. Yeah. (laughs) Seems like a lot of work to think back to that. (laughs) What do you got for number 10, Jason? Well, Dave, my number 10, speaking about movie theaters, was my first experience back in the movie theater. And it was the perfect movie to see in a movie theater. It was Nobody starring Bob Odenkirk. You guys know I like these. And Dave, I know you like them too. Just, um, I don't want to call them bang, bang, shoot them ups because it's really bang, bang, bash them ups. Like, <laughs> you know, hey, any reason to fight and kick ass. And it's kind of goes back to that grindhouse stuff of the 70s. But it's really done well. Last year, I had Becky on the list, which kind of fit that. This year, I kind of like this Bob Oden character as this average white guy who really has a past where he can kick some ass. And it's a super fun movie. Like, and for this year, that's enough to get on the list. Make a movie super fun. You know, even like Josh, you were saying Licorice Pizza has a lot of elements like that. Not the fighting, but the fun elements. So number 10 for me, nobody. Yeah, nobody is great. And uh, it was on my top 10 at the midway point of the year. It kind of got pushed down below a little bit, but uh, still, it's a lot of fun. And uh, still seeing Bob Odenkirk and the RZA and Christopher Lloyd playing back to back is just <laughs> awesome. Good stuff. Yeah, I had I definitely had fun with that movie too, and that that fight on the bus yeah. that that Bob Odenkirk has definitely one of the best like action scenes this year. I think I will mention that later at some point. Oh mm. well, not to step on your uh, uh, picks then, Jason. <laughs> All right, my number ten uh, is a pretty big surprise for me. It is The Matrix Resurrections. Um, Josh and I just recently did a Matrix trilogy episode, which of course followed up the awesome movie year uh, episode on the original Matrix. And like I said back then, I was kind of trying to be cautiously optimistic for the idea of a fourth Matrix movie. I didn't really think it would work, but there was a solid trailer. So, I mean, it gave me a little bit of hope, but it really kind of blew me away. Uh, the whole meta angle of it is just 
so much fun as like a movie nerd. And I know a lot of people did not connect with that angle that they decided to take the story. And Jason, I believe you haven't seen it yet at this time. So I don't want to give away too much. Yeah, I don't give away too much, but I will watch it. And I it is polarizing. And um, yeah. but I'm glad that you liked it. It gives me a little more enthusiasm to watch it. Yeah, and and I I hope you do enjoy it when you get to see it because it's a very specific direction to take the series. But I think Lana Wachowski, you know, really commits to it. Yeah, I I weird that like I liked the meta element of it a lot more than when it switches gears and it's like, oh, now here's a sequel to the Matrix Revolutions <laughs> that sure. I really did not want. Um, but I have to say, yeah, I have to respect Lana Wachowski for saying. Hey, you know, you're you're sort of forcing the return of this big franchise that I invented. Well, I'm going to tell my weird personal story with that. And, you know, you're just going to like it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have to appreciate that more than if Warner Brothers had hired, you know, some Blumhouse graduate or something to make a rehash of The Matrix sure. um, that nobody would have wanted um, but probably would have been less polarized. Sure, it, w- it would have been. And you know, what? One last thing, and then we'll move on. But I, I just love the idea. It's kind of a once in a lifetime thing. I think that we're going to see a hundred and fifty million dollar budgeted blockbuster like this. That's such a personal story and such a weird story to not just do the safe thing of giving fans what they want. Agreed, tenant. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I right. Christopher Nolan is one of the only other people who might have the clout to do something like that. Yeah, absolutely. If he was to want to do something like that, for sure. Yeah. So yes. uh, let's go to your number nine, Josh. All right. Well, my number nine pick is a film from New Zealand called Coming Home in the Dark, directed by James Ashcroft. And weirdly, I think I, would, I was talking to Jason about this a bunch about like catching up at the end of the year and how there were all these like really serious, bleak, heavy movies that I kept kind of putting off. And this movie is very serious and very bleak. It wasn't a movie that I watched for catch up at the end of the year. It was a sort of small scale release uh, earlier on. Um, but it's a tough watch, certainly. Uh, Daniel Gillies is, is really, really good in this film um, as this kind of drifter who kidnaps this family on vacation and torments them. And that's basically the movie is uh, these two criminals and this couple on the road um, as they're, they're sort of played with and tormented. And over time, you figure out what the motivation is for this, this criminal, why he's picked this particular person and what he's trying to sort of get the the this guy to face up to from his past and as you go through that in the audience too you're facing up to these moral dilemmas and you've got kind of a shifting perspective on who's a good person and who's not a good person here and it's very dark and it's very bleak and it doesn't give you any kind of answers or catharsis but it raises a lot of interesting, valuable questions about, you know, what is the right thing to do? And again, Daniel Gillies is just scary as hell in this movie. So it's actually on Netflix now, uh, which I'm glad about because it was a small VOD release that nobody saw, but hopefully more people, if you can endure it, and it's a little difficult, uh, it's worthwhile. So that's uh, Coming Home in the Dark. 
Yeah, I hadn't even heard of this. I, I'm interested to check it out. It sounds really uh, bleak and dark, and I like that. Yes. <laughs> hey, what more of an endorsement do you need than all you have to do is endure it? Yeah. <laughs> right. No, I realize that that's tough. And that's exactly what turns me off from watching certain movies that I did not get to here at the end of the year. But I think for some people, that really is an endorsement. So if, sure. if you're that kind of person, watch this movie. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, Jason, what do you got for number nine? Well, Dave, we're going to stay down there in New Zealand with this here accent there that's nothing like anything from New Zealand there. Uh, Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, which I believe was shot in New Zealand, but of course it's supposed to be Montana or the American West, right? Mm-hmm. And Jane Campion is a master of landscapes. Uh, we see it in everything that she does. She really knows how to utilize the land. And um, speaking about enduring things... Um, the characters here have to endure Benedict Cumberbatch's uh, mean bastard Phil, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is Cumberbatch at his best that I've seen him on film. I think this is his best role. I think Kirsten Dunst is so emotive in her face. Um, there is a big reveal that mostly works, um, but what an interesting character study uh, for this Phil character and what a home run for Cumberbatch and just... Um, again, on Netflix, one of these things that you can't see in movie theaters anymore, but it's a, it's another slow burn that really, really gets there. Yeah, absolutely. I I thought it was great. The whole cast is great. Cody Smith McPhee and Jesse Plemons, both excellent as well. Of course, the uh, Johnny Greenwood score, which I mean, between this and Spencer, they kind of go together, but it's, uh, I think this is probably my favorite of the two. Yeah, let me jump in on that, that just kind of eerie tension that he constantly puts like in between scenes with just violin chords and everything really, really ratchets it up. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree on that, the score. And it was weird to me because I hated the score in Spencer Mm -hmm. and watching The Power of the Dog, I didn't realize that it was him. And I was like, oh, the music is really good. I wonder who did that. And then at the end, it was like, oh, it's the guy who did this score that really drove me crazy and I disliked so much. But yeah, I agree. And it's a very... Very good film. Cody Smith McPhee, I, I especially uh, think is is great. I mean, we know, you know, Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst are big, famous stars, but he's less so. And I think his performance is just as good as theirs. Yeah. And I think it's one of those movies that kind of really stays with you. And like, it's a grower, you know, I, I left the theater like, uh, I think I like that. And I've liked it more and more as time went on. So I will go to my number nine, uh, which is one of two movies that Joe Carnahan put out this year. Uh, He put out both Boss Level and Cop Shop. I'm going with Cop Shop, Uh, although Boss Level is a lot of fun as well. But uh, Cop Shop edged it out, though, because I just think it's kind of a perfect distillation of, like, the B action movie. I think Gerard Butler and Frank Grillo are just having so much fun as two bad dudes who are out after each other in this police station. Um, But then Alexis Louder comes in and just totally steals the movie. She's so good as the lead, basically the hero of the story. Um, And I hope we'll see more from her. I I hope it's not a one and done kind of thing, although she was in the Tomorrow War as well. But I I hope she gets more roles. And then Toby Huss also as the bigger, badder, crazier bad guy. Uh, It's just a total lunatic and so much fun to watch. Did you watch this one, Jason? I didn't get to like see it. Thing. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, no, I mean, I it's not always my kind of thing. I agree it was better. It was better than boss level, definitely. And Alexis Louder, really, really good. Um, I, I I have a, a special uh, dislike for Gerard <laughs> Butler, so it's hard for me to kind of get past him. But I will say, for if you're going to have Gerard Butler in the, in your movie, then this is the right role 
for him. So I'll give it credit for that. Um, yeah, I, it didn't quite work for me. But Alexis Louder, definitely a big star. So, or hopefully she I'm interested be. to hear what Jason thinks when he gets to it, because I, I think he's going to love it. I think Jason will like it too, yeah. I'm excited for it. Awesome. What do you got for number eight, uh, Josh? What do I have for number eight? Uh, so my <laughs> number eight pick is a movie that uh, it seems polarized. A lot of people did not like. Uh, it's called John in the Hole. Uh, from director Pasquale Sisto, and is definitely uh, also kind of an off-putting, you know, to go with Coming Home in the Dark, a movie that is maybe a little difficult to watch. Um, and not because it's quite as dark and bleak as that one is, although it is a bit of that, but it's one of these movies where the characters have kind of unexplainable, inexplicable behavior. Uh, the plot of this movie is that John, who is a 13-year-old kid played by Charlie Shotwell, who is really, really, really good in this film, uh, he puts his family in a hole. Uh, there's this kind of concrete <laughs> bunker thing in their backyard. It's like an unfinished, you know, what would have been an underground bunker. So it's just this big, empty concrete hole. And he drugs them and knocks them out and puts them in a hole. His mom and his dad, uh, played by uh, Jennifer Ely and Michael C. Hall, and his sister, played by Tessa Farmiga. And it, you don't know entirely why. And this kid is basically a sociopath. But it's great because the balance of it is like sometimes he's a sociopath and you think he's kind of torturing his family and he might leave them in there to die. But sometimes it's like home alone and he just wants to like eat junk food and play video games and hang out with his friend. And it just has this eerie, like detached kind of Michael Haneke tone to it that I found fascinating. And it's upsetting but also you can't look away from it and you get through the whole movie and you don't know why any of this happened, but you just are drawn in, or at least I was again, a lot of people did not like this film, but I found it certainly unique and in its own way, beautiful and really well acted, especially from Charlie Shotwell. So John in the hole. It sounds like a perfect companion piece to the lost daughter. <laughs> <laughs> it could be, it could be, it's a little darker even than the lost daughter, but you know, possibly with, with the sort of, uh, strange, inexplicable behaviors uh, and de desires of people, yeah. impulsive behavior. Yeah. I, I think this was on your top 10 at the middle of the year, Josh, wasn't it? It may very well have been. Yeah. yeah I, I haven't seen of... it. I, I want to watch it though. It sounds good. Is it available yeah. anywhere right now? Uh, I think it's still just on VOD rental now, but it's uh it's an IFC films release. So I think those all end up on Hulu eventually. Cool. 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 What do you got for number eight, Jason? My number eight is a movie called The Many Saints of Newark. Speaking of polarizing films, uh, there are Sopranos fans who loved it, Sopranos fans who hated it, and people who never watched The Sopranos, like Dave, who were probably mm -hmm. just lost, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, what you got as The Sopranos went on are kind of these more meandering stories that kind of were really based on the character more than the resolution. And I thought this one nailed that. I loved uh, Alessandro Nivola. Uh, obviously, as a Jersey guy, anything bringing me back to that area at any point in time is fun. This is uh, a long time before that. Uh, we mentioned Cooper Hoffman. It's it's nice to see uh, James Gondolfini's son do so well in this film. And he's just one element of it, you know. Uh, it's really Nivola's movie. And I just thought it was it really hit for me as far as the Sopranos, and that's what I wanted from it. 
Yeah, I didn't see it. Yeah, I, I, I started to watch it, but then I realized, <laughs> yeah, I really should have watched The Sopranos first before I got into this. And I've also never watched The Sopranos, so it didn't really seem like something that would be uh, useful or enjoyable no, for me to jump into. It would not be. But And that's Michael. Is it Michael Gondolfini? Is that the kid's name? Or? I think yeah. so, yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. Tony, Tony, Sopran- Tony yeah. Soprano Gandolfini. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but I mean, if you know Tony and his relationship with his mother, they do a good job of drawing that. And, you know, Ray Liotta plays two different characters, uh, which is funny because he was originally offered the Tony Soprano role. So um, it just it just made me say, like, hey, if they do a, a whole series of this, then I'm in. I'll do that. Right on. Well, uh, my number eight is The Mitchells vs. the Machines from Netflix and Sony Pictures Animation, directed by Michael Rianda. And I, I had this on my list earlier in the year. It uh, dropped a couple of notches, but it's still just too much fun to leave off of the top ten altogether. Uh, I, I, am, I love a movie that loves movies so much and this movie loves movies it loves movie making and that all just shines through so much with the katie character and makes the whole thing just so infectious and and fun to watch and it's also really funny it's probably the funniest movie this year i think which uh there's not a lot of comedies outside of like you know basically what's been baked into marvel movies now so it's uh it's great to see something that like really keeps you laughing from beginning to end and i had a lot of fun with this one yeah, definitely a fun movie. I liked it a lot, too. I don't find Marvel movies that funny anymore. I'm super burned out on them and bored. Um, Fair enough. Dog bread, dog bread, dog loaf of bread, major system malfunction. It was fun. <laughs> it's interesting that a lot of these films, like Ron Gun Wrong, this one, all these animation films are really playing with um, technology within technology and how that world is capturing the real world at this point. Yeah, I liked Ron's Gone Wrong, too, actually. I thought that was a little underrated, but um, this one is definitely better i wanted to like it a little more i feel like because it's it, it was so highly acclaimed and um but definitely a lot of fun to watch for sure well, what do you got for number seven josh well number seven i feel like most of my list now is going to be dave could predict because we already talked about it on that <laughs> last one but let's keep going sure. my number seven pick is alexander asia's oxygen mm-hmm. which is a netflix original film from earlier this year and the kind of thing we're going in, I thought, like, I don't know if this is going to be a feature film. Like, it's one person in one location, not just one location, but like not even really able to move in this confined space. But Melanie Laurent is so, so good as this character who wakes up in this kind of futuristic medical pod. She doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know why she's there. She doesn't know what's going on. All she knows is that she's running out of oxygen and she needs to figure out what to do and how to save herself before the air in this pod runs out and she dies. And she has at her disposal these, uh, you know, uh, displays and she's able to kind of make calls to people, but they don't always go through. And and again, something where you think, how is this going to sustain itself? It's her performance and also the the slow parceling out of information about who this character is and what is her situation and manages to throw in twists where you you think you've learned something and then you realize there's more to it. And, you know, I went from being skeptical of this to being really fascinated by it. I think Alexander Asia manages also to keep it visually interesting. There's only so many angles that you can take on a single person lying down, but he manages to come up with new ways to do that. Also the way it shows the displays. So I feel like this is the kind of thing that people look at and they're like, ah, it's just kind of a whatever B movie, but it's really, it has stuck with me 
And uh, I hope people check it out on Netflix, Oxygen. Yeah, I think it's really good. I, I I feel like it should actually be a little higher up on my list. You know, it's obviously not in my top 10, but it, it's probably top 20 for me. And uh, I also just want to say the score uh, by Rob is fantastic as well. One of my favorites of the year. I'm excited to watch it, Dave. We covered it in one of our trailer episodes, so uh, mm-hmm. I have to get to it still. But uh, Josh, thanks for the endorsement. You are welcome. Thank mm-hmm. you. I take it personally. <laughs> All right. It's for you. Yeah. Jason, what's your number seven? My number seven is a film called Small Engine Repair by John Polono that I don't know if anyone saw. Josh, you were telling me it's out on Hoopla or Canopy now? It's yeah, it's on Canopy and I was I didn't quite get to it, but I was I was hoping to get to it based on your recommendation. Yeah, and I don't know if you'll like it. It's one of these kind of like blue collar, real like kind of buddy stories about three guys who are friends. This is about, you know, forever. And, um, you know, uh, the first hour is really the camaraderie and the fights between these three. And then it takes a very different turn. And I think if you go with that turn, it works for you. And if you don't, you're going to be like, this is nonsense, right? I think it was based on a play so uh, that Polono wrote. And, man, he's good. Shay Wingham and John Bernthal are, I mean, they're both... They can both do anything at this point. Bernthal is becoming a huge star. He was, I mentioned the many saints of Newark were there, but Shea Wingham, who we know is this real tough guy from uh, Boardwalk Empire, really has a, a different type of character here. And then the two female leads, Jordana Spiro and Ciara Bravo, are like really, really great. Ciara Bravo is going to be a star, man. So this is a this is a good film, and I really hope I see more from Polono in the future, who up to this point has been um, an actor, and he's the star of this, but like I want to see more of him as a director and writer as well. Yeah, I definitely want to get to that soon, because uh, you've been talking about it for a while, and it sounds like something that's really fascinating. Yeah, I want to see it too. It's been on my list for a while, and I just haven't gotten a chance, but uh, it looked great. That I, the trailer looked really good, and yeah, Shea Wiggum's great. I mean, he always improves any movies, and... Agreed. So I'll go to my number seven, which is a movie I know neither of you liked, uh, but <laughs> it is Sean Baker's Red Rocket, uh, which I, I don't know what it is about watching pieces of shit on screen just be terrible, but uh, Simon Rex is so much fun to watch as a real piece of shit. Uh, porn star Mikey Saber, uh, who is trying to start his life over, but just is incapable of making good choices in the pursuit of that. Uh, and everything just continues going from bad to worse once he starts uh, trying to appeal to an underage girl played by Susanna Sun and her debut role and she's just fantastic in it as well and the downward spiral just keeps going and going and going Um, and yeah I mean the whole thing just kind of feels like like a real, you know, portrait of just how bad things could get, especially in, in today and in, in how narcissistic people have become. And I just, I, again, I don't know what it is about watching this kind of character just unfold, but uh, to me, it's great. Well, the problem was that it didn't unfold more and that it unfolded only to a certain extent in a mm. long period of time. Uh, Simon Rex is very good, but... The movie's two hours and 10 minutes, and there's really no growth either, or he doesn't get better or worse. He's just the same the whole time. And because of the runtime, as opposed to something like Tangerine, which is just packed with immediacy and energy, this one just kind of 
fell flat, much like Simon Rex's floppy dong when he's running down the street towards the end. <laughs> yeah, I liked it even less. Uh, although, Dave, I mean, you're in the majority on this. This is a highly critically acclaimed movie that is definitely on a lot of of year end lists. But uh, I think I'm the opposite of you that these movies, I mean, we've probably talked about the Softy Brothers movies in mm-hmm. previous, you know, top 10, because I know you love their films. Sure. And I just can't stand something like, where it's not only just, I hate this guy and he just does terrible things for two hours, but I didn't feel like it was insightful about that. Like I can watch movies that are about terrible people. I, there's, there are ones that I've just mentioned on my list that are movies about terrible people doing terrible things. Um, but to me, this movie is just like two hours of not entertaining or illuminating just unpleasantness. And I, I remember I like took a long break in the middle of this movie because I was just like, I can't even stand this. I don't even want to watch the rest of it, but I did. Yeah. Well, I, I will say though, to what Jason was saying, I do agree. And I mean, we could have a whole larger conversation about movie run times right now. I don't think it needed to be two hours and 10 minutes. I agree with you there. Uh, but that is a thing. Everything seems to be very long nowadays. Yeah. That could be one of, you know, we're going to do like three moments. I usually do overall themes for my moments and that could be one of them. This, annoyingly long runtime on uh, so many movies. I just, uh, this was one of the bigger disappointments for me this year because I like Sean Baker and I thought Tangerine and the Florida Project were both so good. And this one just did not work for me like that. Yeah, and I like those movies too. But I agree that Tangerine and Florida Project are good. So I'm I'm still interested in what Sean Baker does next. For sure. Well, uh, let's move on to number six. Uh, Josh, what do you got? Well, actually, this kind of goes with what we're talking about here about movies that kind of make you uncomfortable or characters who are making terrible decisions. A movie that was actually compared a lot to Softy Brothers movies, but that I liked a lot more. And that is Emma Seligman's Shiva Baby, which is another one from earlier in the year. Um, But to me, like, yes, this is a movie that will give you a lot of anxiety and put you on edge along with the lead character who is stuck at this family gathering at a Shiva, which is a Jewish Uh, almost like a wake uh, for someone that she doesn't even really know, but it's just a family obligation that she's there. And she encounters both her ex-girlfriend played by Molly Gordon, uh, who's really good in this film. uh, And Rachel Sennett is the one who plays the main character. Uh, And she also encounters this man that she's been sleeping with, who she discovers is married, which she did not realize. Um, And it's just uh, 80 minutes, not two hours and 10 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I think, a big part of the uh, appeal of this woman trying to avoid her own bad choices. And I think it's, yes, she's made a lot of bad choices, but it's a lot more of a movie about someone who's young and is figuring herself out. And those bad choices are informing how she can maybe become a better person. And also this movie is very funny. Uh, Polly Draper and especially Fred Melamed who uh, in a couple of movies this year plays this great father figure. He's also in uh, Together Together with Ed Helms, which I just watched recently, which is a fun, underrated comedy. Uh, And he's just great at playing this kind of befuddled dad figure. Uh, So as much as Shiva Baby is anxiety-inducing, it's also a funny comedy, and I think that's what works there. So Shiva Baby. Yeah, I love Shiva Baby. It's top 15 for me. Didn't quite make my list, but uh, yeah, it's great. And Fred Melamed's the best. (laughs) Yes, I liked it. Uh, Just again, maybe I'm just a cranky old man in 2021. It didn't connect for me on all those ways. I remember you guys talking. I don't know if it was you guys talking about it or someone else, but 
Someone was saying the fact that it's all in the house and with that score and the way that it was shot almost like a horror movie, like Mm -hmm. that was really effective. Uh, I'm definitely excited to see what what comes next um, for for the star here. Uh, She was she also the director there, Josh? No, uh, Emma Seligman is the director and Rachel. Rachel Sennett is the star, but both really. Yeah, I'd like to see both of them. And I also think it was nice to see. Diana Agron from Glee, who's like kind of reinventing herself. She did a good job as like that perfect trophy wife kind of who actually had, um, you know, some really good backbone to her character. Yeah. And there's depth to that kind of character who could easily just be a stereotype or a caricature. And yeah, I agree to the score. Uh, Unlike to me, the score in Spencer, which is abrasive in a way that drove me crazy. The score here really heightens all the feelings of the film. Go Jews. (laughs) all right jason what's your number six uh my number six is a little film called boss level uh carnahan making it on both both of our lists here Uh, this is the only place where joe carnahan's two movies will be both represented you know the rise of Frank Grillo as this you know uh what would be the equivalent of a b-level action star in the 90s is now almost to a level at this point in time. He is a he is a a worthy competitor to the belt there. And um, you know, we've seen so many time loop movies, and this one's fun about how he just has to survive the day without getting murdered. And um, last year we talked about that movie with uh, oh Guns Akimbo, right? With uh, mm-hmm. with Daniel Radcliffe about just how off the rails bad that got when it should have been good. And this is what I think Joe Carnahan does best uh, when he's able to create and keep his world the way that you want it moving and have that level of fun with it. And he's just kind of doing his own thing. I don't think he's in the Hollywood system anymore, and he's just kind of living on the outside, making movies that will probably only get released on Hulu and stuff like that. And I'm all for it. And at a time when I needed to have a lot of fun, this one gave it to me. Yeah, and I think as a video game guy, I would say that this is uh, pretty much the best, like, accurate depiction of video games, even though it's not based on any particular game. It's like, it really does a great job of adapting that experience to a movie. Yeah, I wasn't a huge <laughs> Yeah, we know. I, 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 I thought Cop Shop was better, um, but, you know, Carnahan definitely... Yeah, doing his uh, his thing. And Cop Shop, to be fair, did get released in theaters. So he's not entirely on the outside, but definitely is in his own little realm, for better or worse. All right. Well, uh, my number six, a movie that Jason hates, and I don't know if Josh ever got around to it, uh, and I'm definitely not going to change any minds here, but it is Sam Levinson's Malcolm M. Shame on you. I'm, gonna, I'm leaving the show right now. It's such a garbage <laughs> film. Yeah, I, I will admit I wanted to rewatch it before this conversation just so I could see how it's, uh, you know, how it's aged for me, how, how it's grown, if at all, or if I've lost anything, but... Man, I love this movie. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I love Zendaya in it. I love John David Washington in it. I love the script, which is, I know, the main point of contention for a lot of people. Uh, I, 
again, you know, kind of like with Red Rocket, you know, I don't know what it is about watching terrible people and watching uh, a relationship fall apart in this situation um, that is appealing to me, but something about it just really, really works. And I know there's obviously been many movies over the years, many that this is inspired by uh, about relationships falling apart, but I don't know that there's ever been one that quite captures a relationship of this moment of people that are you know, of this generation and the way that they talk and the way that they uh, relate to one another. And I think this movie does that perfectly. And yeah, I, I know most people hate it and that's okay. I loved it. Josh, I'll let you jump in. I just want to say, Dave, nothing about this felt real to me. The dialogue didn't feel real to me and the performers who are both good uh, were both horrible in this one. Uh, John David Washington is eating every scene and, you know, um, I'm sure that's with some help from the director just saying go for it. And Daya, I don't even know, man. It's like, you know, one minute she's strong, independent woman. The next minute she's like crying girlfriend. It just doesn't work for me as a character. She's much better in Spider-Man, which I also didn't like. What you just described of those two characters, I would argue, is what people are like. But, Josh, continue. <laughs> I don't have anything to say about it. I didn't see it. Yeah. Um, okay. And I didn't want to see it. Yeah. And I stand by that. I'm sure you would but hate it. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. But and that's why I didn't think it was worth my time. And it wasn't a movie that was so acclaimed that I thought, oh, I should see it, even though I don't think I will like it. Yeah. I liked Zendaya in Spider Man, <laughs> and uh, John David Washington uh, was good. I in a in a kind of underrated thriller called Beckett that came out this year. That's all I have to say about it. You that. know, I want to just add the camera work here is so showy it actually takes away from the story as opposed to we just talked about some paul paul thomas anderson who you know sets up these complicated shots that actually add to the emotion in this scene this guy is actually taking away from the effectiveness of his own film i will say i kind of hated his other work that i've seen uh, assassination nation i hated that movie even, too by the way even euphoria i which zendaya is also in i i turned that off halfway through the first episode it was definitely not for me although that's quite popular so that's all i have on that well let's get to our top fives josh what do you got for number five well, okay, my my number five pick is is definitely the most obscure thing on my list, even more so than that uh, film from New Zealand. And another one that came up in the half year mark, but that has stuck with me, and it's called Sugar Daddy. It is a Canadian film directed by Wendy Morgan and uh, starring someone that I think Jason's probably familiar with, uh, Kelly McCormick from the show Letter Kenny, which I know Jason is a huge fan Love of. It. And I have not watched Letterkenny, but I have a feeling this is very different. I know that's that's sort of a goofy comedy. Uh, this is not uh, Kelly McCormick. She plays an aspiring musician who uh, sort of almost on a whim in order to make some money, signs up for a sugar baby dating site and ends up as not, you know, sort of a, a sex worker, um, but, you know, in this kind of gray area where she's not exactly an escort, but she is being paid to spend time with these men. Uh, Colm Fior, who's always an underrated character actor, plays the the one that the man that she spends the most time with. And I just felt like this was a fascinating character study. And it really, it, 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 it gives respect and agency to this character working as a sex worker without ignoring the fact that these decisions do take a toll on her. Uh, at, on her personality, on her relationship. And it's not judgmental, but it allows kind of the full spectrum of emotions. And it's also a very stylized film. There's all of these 
uh, a kind of abstract music video interludes. The character is a musician, and so she performs her songs that Kelly McCormick herself sings. And Wendy Morgan um, creates some really impressive uh, like music video moments in this film. So I don't know. This is something that I watched for my uh, column that I write about uh, obscure VOD releases, and the vast majority of movies that I watch for that are terrible. <laughs> so it's always nice to have a pleasant surprise of a movie, not only that was not terrible, but that was actually really ambitious and accomplished on clearly a very small budget and limited resources. So this one, I think is it's on Amazon Prime now, um, and uh, as well as on Tubi. So if you don't want to spend any money, you can watch Sugar Daddy. Uh, on those places, and I hope that people will. Pitter patter, let's get at her. Okay, Letter Kenny reference. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> Letter Kenny fans, watch this film and be baffled by it. Yeah, I, I have not seen it. I remember you talking about it. It sounds very interesting. Um, I, I would like to check it out sometime. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, this is one that I'm sure isn't on a lot of people's lists. You know, compared to stuff that that got much more widespread acclaim. Yeah. but worth highlighting, I think. Jason, what's your number five? My number five, uh, speaking of obscure, although I think Josh has seen this film, is currently available on Hulu. It's called Riders of Justice by Anders Thomas Jensen. Uh, I love Nordic noir films. I love the kind of just totally off the wall sense of humor that a lot of these kind of pieces have. And honestly, Mads Mikkelsen is as good as any actor working today, not just as an actor, but from a the way he chooses projects, like he's in a lot of mainstream American stuff as supporting player. And then he goes and he does these crazy Nordic movies or international films. And they're so interesting and unique and just wonderful. And this is one of them where it's like tonally this shouldn't work because it's like part. Uh, this woman ends up on a train and um, she gets blown up in what is appears to be a terrorist attack. And there was a statistician on the train who gave up the seat for her. And he uses statistics to track down who he thinks is the killer. And he tells Mads Mikkelsen, who is uh, her widow, <clears throat> widower, who, uh, you know, is this army commander. And he just, you know, goes revenge balls to the wall. And the first kill is so exciting and out of nowhere and sudden. It's great. Like that Mads does. And then now he's got this team of like statisticians and computer nerds as his like hard boiled backup. It's so strange and weird and wonderful. Like, what a cool movie. And thank you for taking a chance. Yeah, I did see it. And it is cool. And I agree. One of the great things about that movie is that at every point you think like, oh, it's this kind of movie. And then it swerves and it becomes a completely different kind of movie. And the way it sort of deconstructs the idea of the revenge thriller. And I can't imagine how it would be done if it gets you know, remade in America, which it probably will because mm -hmm. it was popular enough and Mads Mikkelsen is famous in America. But yeah, it made me curious to see, this is the fifth movie I think that he and Anders Thomas Jensen have made together. And I think this is maybe the least weird of their films <laughs> from what I've read about others. So it definitely made me curious to see more. Um, Josh, I, I appreciate a point that you brought up there, which is they didn't just stick with like, you killed my wife revenge. They ask bigger questions about what revenge means and what uh, all of it means together and the, how the relationships change. And just, you know, you see like one of these computer hackers who wants to be this tough guy who can't hack it, so to speak, you know, like mm -hmm. they really have layers to these characters that are interesting. And some of the stuff that you're not supposed to joke about, they joke about like child abuse and they make it funny which I think you can do. You can joke about anything if you do it correctly and show 
Um, it's due compassion and just don't use it as a throwaway. Just a really interesting film. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I want to watch this. I've heard nothing but great things about it, um, but I have not seen it yet. But yeah, it sounds great. I will go to number five, and that is T10 uh, from Julia Ducourneau, uh, which you know won the Cannes Palme d'Or this year. And uh, a lot of people in the uh, film critic and film podcaster world have been really you know taken with it, and everybody seems to love it. I don't know how it's translating to general audiences. I, I have no idea because it's a very strange movie. Um, kind of starts off as this weird like grotesque gore horror type movie and then grows to become this weird touching story about acceptance although very hugely exaggerated over the top version of a story about acceptance uh but then you know at its core is still also the movie about the woman who fucks a car and gets pregnant from it uh which is also very weird and so there's just all kinds of stuff going on in this movie uh great performances at the center of it from agatha russell and vincent linden um both of who are just excellent uh and it's just a movie that proves that you could still be uh surprised by movies movies that just will go places you really didn't expect them to go even though you walked in knowing it was going to be weird you just didn't know it was going to go this strange and this different and have this much uh unexpected to to get you into yeah i was really it sounded like the kind of movie that i would love and this was like uh, you know, we're talking about catching up. This was like number one or number two on my list of like, I must catch up with this before the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And I really did not like it. And I was disappointed in not liking it because it seems like my kind of thing and the weirdness and, and all of that and the like sexual transgressiveness and all of that is stuff that I generally really like in films. But I just didn't buy the sort of that story of acceptance that you're talking about, yeah. the sentimental relationship between the two main characters just... I completely could not get into at all. And that takes over is really like two thirds of the movie is about that. Oh yeah. And uh, it just didn't, it didn't work for me, but I, you know, I have to respect Julia DeCorno for going for her really weird off-putting vision and, and not compromising on it. I always appreciate that. Yeah. I, li I like the idea also like with like an awesome movie year covering all of the Palme d'Or winners, like that this would be in that list of Palme d'Or winners is uh, pretty awesome. Yeah, it would be quite something to talk about on an awesome movie year episode. I haven't seen it. Does the uh, baby drink unleaded breast milk? Hey, oh, <laughs> you you joke, but that's really not that far. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. That's a that's you know, it's a good varied pick. Awesome. Yes. Well, yes. let's move on. Number four, Josh, what do you got? Well, speaking of Go Jews, as Jason uh, <laughs> Go Jews. articulated earlier, I got another Jewish movie and another one from earlier in the year that we talked about. Uh, my my uh, my favorite horror movie of the year, and I'm I'm a big horror fan, and there were a lot of really good horror movies this year, especially uh, Shutter original movies. Shutter is absolutely killing it, even though this is not a Shutter movie, but they do some amazing stuff. Uh, but my pick is The Vigil from Keith Thomas, the writer-director, and this is his debut feature. And as a horror movie, it does a lot of familiar things. It's uh, the main character spending the night in a spooky house with a dead body and a crazy old woman who says mysterious, weird, scary things, and there's a demon possessing the dead man. And 
as that kind of story, it's very effective. It scares you. Uh, it draws you into this creepy world. Uh, Lynn Cohen, who plays the old woman who is not entirely there, except when she is mm -hmm. and says a lot of very unsettling things. She's great at that kind of thing. Uh, Dave Davis, who is the main character, he plays a very empathetic, easy to like guy when you're, you know, you're scared when he's in danger. But what elevates this movie is the way that it's so culturally specific and that it takes place within this community in Brooklyn this ultra-Orthodox Jewish community that the main character has decided to leave. And he's drawn back in because he is someone who has experience and is available to do this thing, sitting up with this body overnight, uh, a kind of a Shiva, like in Shiva Baby, but it's just this one night. And because there's no other relative or at least no other uh, kind of healthy relative who can do this, he's hired for it, reluctantly comes back in the community. So it's about the scariness, but it's also about the legacy of religion. It's about trying to separate yourself from the community that you've known for your whole life and how that how difficult that can be. Uh, it's about trauma that's carried over from the Holocaust. Uh, it's just really well acted. And uh, I feel like for this kind of thing, it elevates it um, beyond that simple horror story. And I think maybe people would dismiss it because it's like, oh, scary demon in a spooky house overnight, whatever. But I think there's a lot more to it than that. So the vigil. Great pick. Yeah, it, it's a really good movie and uh, you know, definitely my top 20, 25, something like that. But one thing, you know, as, as a movie podcast, you know, you want to recommend movies to people. I know like at least four or five people who have told me like I watched the vigil because of the podcast and all liked it. So I'm really happy to say that. That's like 90% of your audience. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, you watch this yet? I know you're not a big horror guy. No, but I will watch it. And I'm, you know, what's interesting is how many unique projects are coming out of um, Orthodox Judaism right now. Uh, Hasidity, Hasidity, you know. Hasidity. Hasidic Jews. You know, uh, I mean, look, we've talked about to dust multiple times on this podcast, which is. Yeah. A uh, very offbeat comedy that came out a few years ago. Unorthodox was a huge hit on Netflix. So, um, Josh, when you mentioned the specificity, I think that's where we're going with this. And I hope there's more to come. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm curious to see. And Keith Thomas, the director, the writer director, comes from that community. So it'll be interesting to see what he does next. What do you got for number four, Jason? Number four could be anywhere from number four to number two for me. Um, I watched it. It's the stayed. It stayed with me a, a great amount. The music is so good, and it is Lin Manuel Miranda's "Tick Tick Boom" from the Jonathan Larson play. And what a comeback Lin Manuel Miranda had from uh, earlier this year to later this year, right? <laughs> In the Heights, I don't know what happened. People didn't like it. People were upset with him, and then he does "Tick Tick Boom" or releases it later. And what a love letter to. One of his predecessors, one of his influences. The music is amazing. It shows you what a talent Larson was. We all knew him from Rent and just what a tragic end. He died the night before it premiered. He shows such an amount of love to Broadway and to writing and to musical theater. And I got to say, I was never an Andrew Garfield fan. I liked him in The Social Network. This year, Andrew Garfield has impressed the heck out of me. And he's probably my pick for best actor for this movie. I would probably vote for him for best actor. Tick, tick, boom. I love it. I will definitely watch it again. I want to watch it. I haven't seen it yet. 
But I, I really want to watch it. And Andrew Garfield, yeah, absolutely having a year. Right. Yeah. And Lin Manuel too. I mean, you mentioned in the Heights, which I liked in the Heights a lot. Um, it 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 I think it might have been on my uh half year top ten. Um, and it's it's close there. I liked it a lot more than than Tick Tick Boom. Um, but you know, those two and uh Vivo, which I didn't see, um, and Encanto also, I mean, all four of those movies, Lynn Manuel, you know, whether it was writing songs or directing or writing screenplay based on his work or whatever it is, he, you know, major creative force in all of those films this year. So that is that is an impressive body of work. He could just retire now, probably. And, you know, I'm sure he won't. But, but. you know, Josh, and it's cool that, you know, this one wasn't for you. But I think as a directorial debut, you see that he is just going to get better and better. And he's already kind of laid the groundwork for that. I hope he does get better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My number four is Bo Burnham's Inside, uh, which is in a lot of ways, I think the defining movie of the pandemic, right? Would would you say that's a fair thing to say, whether you liked it or not? I think it it, it fits that in a lot of ways. And I wasn't even going to con you know consider it for the show at first because it's you know in essence a comedy special, but it really does feel more like you know an experimental film, and that's why we ended up doing an episode on it. Jason was my guest for that one, and I I I just think that this movie is it's it's inventive, it's creative it's exciting to watch as a creative person to want to uh continue making things and you know me a music composer but also i work with music videos and things like that i like to create things and this movie uh, really celebrates that and some of the songs have stayed with me the entire year i'm still singing them i'm still laughing about them laughing at the lyrics and uh, i i was not the biggest bo burnham guy before this but uh i've gone back and i've now watched his other specials and love them too uh, I think he's incredibly smart and incredibly funny. I think this is a proper place for this, David. When we talked about it on the uh, episode, um, we were talking about it as a comedy special. It just, I know I'm in the minority, but it didn't hit for me as a comedy special. But as a film, I agree with you. It's very unique. It's very different. It's a one-man band, and he really knocks it out of the park. I'm so impressed with it as a film. I just didn't love it as a comedy special. I'm excited to see him way more what he does going forward as a director than as a comedian. That's just my personal choice. But it mm. also goes to the larger picture that now in this age of content creation, there aren't as many great comedy specials because there's so many of them out there. So people are going outside of the box. And, you know, we had the same argument with Nanette and Hannah Gatsby. But whether it's comedy special, a movie, a one-man show, a TED Talk, if it entertains you, it's something. So cool. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree from the perspective that this is definitely a film, you know, and I, I, you know, definitely thought of other, you know, like kind of personal experimental documentaries when watching this movie. And for me, I mean, I had heard so much from Dave and, and many, many other people about this being great. And so this was a movie that I watched as like that end of year catch up. And I think coming to it, even only, you know, six, eight, whatever months later, it felt like it was outdated already in a way to mm. me mm. like and that's not necessarily bad it's clearly a snapshot and meant to be a snapshot of his perspective and his feelings and his process at that particular moment but i don't know something about it to me was almost a little stale um you know it felt like watching one of those uh, zoom movies or whatever <laughs> which i unfortunately saw quite a few of for my uh 
my VOD column. It's better than those, absolutely. And he's clearly just from doing all of those things himself, it's just like an amazing accomplishment. Even just from like I, watching, I was like, man, just the production design here that he put together himself is is pretty astounding. So yeah, it's something that I I kind of, I'm with you, Jason, in that at, like, I don't think I laughed once. Um, and also I was like, I admire this more than I enjoyed it. Hmm. Well, I think as as we go into another uh, phase of the pandemic, we'll see if we continue to get more stuff like this. Yeah, yeah. it's gonna, it's gonna a sequel is gonna be called Back Inside or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sadly, that but may be the case. Josh, you you know, Josh knows this, and uh, Dave, you might too. I wrote a pandemic movie, uh, a Zoom that all takes place on Zoom, and one of the reasons I didn't pursue it was because by the time I was ready to, I felt like it was already going to be outdated. But then mm-hmm. one portion of it just got picked up by this. Uh, like play festival and uh, it's like a new voices play blah 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 and we're performing it we're closing the festival it's a zoom festival in march and i'm like i don't know if it's going to be relevant or not but it's interesting that um we're able to keep pushing boundaries i guess with form which is what bo burnham did here sure yeah i mean and i'm not saying it's like you can't do that i mean there were a couple of other movies um I mean, host the horror movie that might have been from last year. It all blurs together, but mm. you know that was good. And definitely this year, language lessons, the Mark Duplass and Natalie Morales yeah. movie that I thought was quite good. So I'm not saying it can't be good, but it, because Inside is not just that; it's all very much about the pandemic and about being stuck because of the pandemic. It really felt like it was, you know, of a very, very particular moment, and that and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go to our top threes. Josh, what do you got for number three? Well, my number three is, I think, my one other movie that has been on a lot of other critics' lists this year, um, but that I thought was really, really fantastic. And talk about an amazing debut feature from Rebecca Hall, who, of course, is known as an actor and a great actor and was gave a great performance this year in uh, The Night House, which was a somewhat underrated horror movie. But here she's the writer-director of Passing, Uh, based on a novel from 1929 and also set in New York City in the 1920s with just fantastic performances from Tessa Thompson and especially Ruth Nega as these old friends who haven't seen each other in a long time, uh, both Black women who um, to varying degrees are able to pass for white. And uh, the character Claire, played by Ruth Nega, has kind of fully embraced this. She is married to a white man, played by Alexander Skarsgård, who, of course, is great at playing terrible men. Mm. Um, And so not only is she married to this white guy who doesn't know that she's not white, but he's super racist. And she has really embraced this and encountering her old friend, uh, Tessa Thompson's character, uh, Irene, it really shakes up Irene's life. And it's more about her life and what she's Uh, kind of assumed about her existence that she has, where she's very prominent in this kind of middle-class Black community in Harlem, and she's an activist, and she's very secure in her identity, and re-encountering her old friend challenges all of that, whether it's in terms of racial identity or class identity uh, or sexual identity even. And that all sounds kind of intellectualized, and there is all that, but it's also just a really emotional character study about the friendship between these two people, incredibly well acted. It looks beautiful, shot in black and white in uh, 4-3 in the Academy ratio, which was a huge thing this year for many, many movies for various reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the score, the piano-based score of this film, which is by uh, Devontae Hines, is just 
beautiful. It was probably my favorite score this year. So yeah, this is a movie that I think maybe a lot of people would look at and think it's this kind of like, oh, it's, uh, you know, just good for you kind of film. It's like reading a book in school or whatever, but it's so much more immersive than that. So I really like that passing. I want to watch it. I haven't gotten a chance to. It's at like the top of my uh, my screener stack. But this one weird thing about it's this on movie. Netflix. Oh yeah, it is on Netflix now, huh? Well, that actually goes to what I was going to say. Uh, this movie, like a lot of movies this year, and I think this speaks to just how many movies there are, and also the constantly you know weird release dates. This is one of those movies that just feels like it came out and it's gone, and like nobody talked about it. And I, if you had told me it's still not coming out for another few weeks, I'd believe you. Like it's weird. I don't know. Did you feel like it was passing right by you? That's oh, that's good, Jason. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah, it's it's weird. I think because I think it played at Sundance and maybe a, a you know a couple other festivals, and I felt like it got more attention at that point when it was at these festivals, and so not really accessible for most people. Then when it finally did come out on Netflix and anyone could watch it, uh, it maybe did get overshadowed by some other stuff. But I have seen it on quite a few lists this year, and I think it's absolutely worthy. And uh, it is on Netflix, as Jason said. So, you know, most people are able to watch it now. Cool. Cool. Well, Jason, what do you got for uh, number three? Number three, I am delving into both of uh, two of my favorite worlds, not just as a film fan, but as a food fan, as a food writer. It is Pig the debut film by Michael Sarnofsky, um, which is really amazing how good Nicolas Cage is in this movie. And I hope we're at the point where we are, uh, you know, I know we appreciate him on this show, but where people just stop looking at him as like the B, the B level joke, because he does take these chances and hits these home runs sometimes, but this thing looks great. Um, I love Portland and this shows so many different aspects of it. Um, every time you think you know where this movie is going, it takes a different turn. I think it has one of the most memorable scenes of the year when Cage goes to one of his uh, former sous chefs or, you know, someone who worked from his his restaurant. And the guy is like a huge sensation. But Nicolas Cage calls him out on just what BS it is because he's not cooking his food. And because of that, you know, the one thing there's this pivotal moment where he cooks uh, for the guy who stole his pig or who has access to his pig. And he says, you know, I remember every meal I've cooked. And normally you wouldn't believe that. But with this character, you could almost get away with it because he shows that kind of uh, just total recall. And I think this is a, such a good portrayal of the mental health breakdowns that you can find in this world uh, in different ways. I just think what an interesting film and another filmmaker I can't wait to see more from. I agree. It's a very good film and I would, you know, have it just, just below my top 10. And certainly Nicolas Cage, I think might've been, you know, near the top of my list for best actors this year. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I agree. It's just below my top 10 and one of my favorite performances of the year for sure. And I, I just love the idea of a movie that essentially is just about like loving something. And that that's basically it. And that is kind of what you need to find, especially nowadays with, you know, everything just being so just fucked up, you know? <laughs> yes. Speaking of which, something that I just love, my number three is Malignant. 
Um, <laughs> Speaking of things that are fucked up. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that James Wan's Malignant is a perfect movie. Uh, I do think it takes way too much time in the middle trying to misdirect you into thinking it's just a standard run-of-the-mill James Wan haunted house demon movie, uh, which is a gamble that I think kind of backfired on a lot of people who genuinely think that that's all the movie is and that it's just a bad version of that when... In reality, James Wan is a smart guy and I think knows exactly what he's doing here. Uh, he basically took the goodwill that uh, was afforded to him by making two $1 billion movies back to back and used that to make just an ode to the B movies and just totally over the top ridiculousness of uh, 80s horror, 90s horror, back to the Giallo stuff, and uh, just splatter and just all the crazy over the top gore that goes with that stuff. And the last 20 minutes of this movie alone makes it one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, just it goes as big and as crazy and as fun as can be. And before that, there is so much to love as well. I mean, there's so much inventive camera work, there's uh, so much ridiculous fun, and yeah. I get it. It's too long, like a lot of movies this year. But aside from that, I love it. Yeah, I you know, I had a weird experience with this film where I think like Titan, it sounds like the kind of thing that I would love. And especially leading up to it. Um, and just I saw it like the, I went to the drive in and saw it like the day it was released. Mm -hmm. But even just the early reviews that week all were like, oh, my God, it's so crazy. The twist is so crazy. It's so crazy. And I was like, oh, I'm in for this movie that's totally nuts. And I don't know if maybe my sensibilities are warped, but I was like, nah, this really wasn't that nuts. It really was not nuts enough for me. And there's so much of what you're describing where it's just like basic haunted house, whatever, build up and you get to the twist. And I was like, okay, I guess that's kind of weird, but whatever. So mm. I don't know. I, it, I wish I loved it as much as you did. Yeah. Jason, have you watched Malignant? No, but you did make it sound like... I would like it, so maybe I should. Yeah, I don't know, Jason, because, you know, you're really not much of a horror fan, and I think Dave is right. Like, a lot of it does rely on having that affection for the the horror B-movie stuff, you know, and, and if you don't have a love for that, you might just look at it as, like, what, what even is this? It's very much not for everyone, like, for sure. <laughs> like, a lot of people yeah. are not going to get much out of it, so. Yes. All right, number two. What do you got, Josh? Well, number two for me is a movie that Jason mentioned earlier, which is Steven Soderbergh's No Sudden Move. And I was I was glad actually finally to see this on a few other people's lists recently. And I was glad that Jason mentioned it because I feel like this movie disappeared earlier in the year. And it's weird because Steven Soderbergh is one of the greatest filmmakers working today and is acknowledged as such. But I think because Soderbergh is so focused on like new ways of making and distributing movies and has decided to be so all in on streaming, even before the pandemic, to the point where I mean, this is an HBO Max film, but I know earlier when he made a couple movies for Netflix, he specifically requested that they not release his films in theaters because he is all in on streaming. And I think that has done him a disservice because people aren't it get it's not getting as much notice. Um, this is a movie that absolutely could have been appealing in theaters. It is a star-studded uh, caper movie. You know, it has more on its mind and it makes some social commentary about uh, environmentalism and about the auto industry in Detroit. 
Um, but I feel like that was almost secondary and it never loses sight of the crazy twisty plot and all of the fascinating characters. Uh, Don Cheadle and Benicio Del Toro, who play the main two characters, are, are great. And it's a movie that it's got a great sense of humor. It's got this wonderful period uh, recreation of 1950s Detroit. Uh, every time a new actor shows up, you're like, oh, hey, it's that person. And they do a great job, even if they're only on screen for a couple minutes. So I feel like it's weird to say that a Steven Soderbergh movie with all of these stars in it has been forgotten or underrated. But I really think this movie has. And and again, it's on HBO Max. If you've got HBO Max, you can watch it right now. And I and I hope people do. One one thing I want to add to that, Josh, is uh, if you do see this in the theater, which you won't, but you, seeing that kind of fisheye style that he, you know, the lenses, um, you know, he's a, a master at shooting. So I think it, it would have been cool to see in the theater for sure. Yeah, and literally no one can see this in a theater because it was never shown in any. I think it might have shown at one film festival. But, you know, for better or worse, Soderbergh is all in on the streaming and no theaters. My brief story about No Sudden Move, uh, which I still have not seen, is I was going to finally... You didn't watch it in between when Jason mentioned it earlier and now? I know, right? Imagine that. No, I was going to watch it on the plane on the way to our honeymoon. uh, And the sound system was broken. The headphones would not work. And so instead, I ended up watching a foreign movie where I was going to have to read the subtitles anyway. I watched The Dog Who Wouldn't Be Quiet. So uh, shout out to that Argentinian film. It's very good. That's weird. And so but you watched it with no sound? No sound, just subtitles. I was like, I I just won't hear the score, I guess, you know? So. Oh, yeah. But also sound effects. And was it closed captioned or it was just subtitles? It was subtitles. So that's so weird. Yep, but uh, but I weirdly I feel like Steven Soderbergh is one of the few filmmakers who would say like yes, watch my movie on a plane. Yeah, <laughs> go for it. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, Jason, what's your number two? My number two is my favorite animated movie this year. It's called Luca. It's one of my favorite Pixar movies. Uh, directorial debut from Enrico Casarosa. Um, here's the thing with Pixar, as we've talked about, sometimes they get bogged down in the message. And that works for the most part. That that always works for them. This one is less message and more fun. And it really is so much fun. Uh, This Italian landscape, this journey of friendship and acceptance, the music, everything just works for me. It's a lovely film. I highly recommend it. It's called Luca. Luca's a lot of fun. I, I thought it was great, too. Yeah, I mean, I weird like I agree with what you're saying, Jason, that it it it's focused on just like that fun and not about something bigger. And I guess for me that was why it was nice and I enjoyed it, but it didn't it didn't stay with me uh, as much. But I mean, Pixar, it's like impossible for them to make a bad movie. Pretty much, yeah. Cars three, Cars two, yeah, yeah, three. Cars three. So, Maybe yeah, sequels, that's fair. Okay, yeah. yeah, the Cars the Cars sequels are pretty. No, bad, I understand but, what uh, you're saying, Josh, but um. You know, again, like, uh, as you can see, my list is filled with some serious stuff and and just some stuff where I could have a good time. And uh, Dave mentioned Mitchell's versus the machines, which I like. But this one, I could just sit down with my daughter and we just we just loved it. I just I just had a wonderful time with it. It also looks amazing. Yeah. I mean, I th- like a lot of I think that's movies. great. Yeah. Did you watch the short film sequel? I that's did. On, uh, Disney it's Plus fun. Now? It's nice. Yeah. 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 Also fun and yeah. nice. I agree. All right. My number two is Godzilla versus Kong, which is nonsense. It's over the top, just silly, ridiculous, blockbuster popcorn nonsense. Uh, Godzilla and Kong apparently now 
come from the hollow earth where everything is upside down and there's monsters and there's portals back to uh, the, the, the mainland. And apparently there was great wars fought, which maybe we'll get to see in future sequels. I don't know. But and, and Rebecca Hall is known as the Kong Whisperer. And there's a little girl who could communicate with King Kong. It's so ridiculous. But Adam Wingard knew exactly what we wanted from a Godzilla versus Kong movie, which is Godzilla just being the biggest, baddest, you know, gigantic radioactive lizard imaginable, and King Kong being the hero because King Kong is the best. He's just the best character ever. And uh, this movie features some of the best monster fighting I've ever seen. I watched like a lot, like, like at least six various Godzillas and Kong movies leading up to this. And for anyone who's like watches this movie and is like, the reason I didn't like Godzilla vs. Kong is because it's ridiculous. I don't think you've watched any Godzilla or King Kong movies because they're all completely ridiculous, save for maybe the first one of each. Every other one that's come since are just nonsense. And this follows in that tradition. Uh, so I think this movie is everything that I would want out of a Godzilla vs. Kong movie. And I think most of all, the fact that Winger knows that King Kong is the character to root for, not Godzilla, just makes it you know, all the more better. And the best part of, of course, I can't leave this out is that I saw this movie as my first movie back to the movie theater after like 16 months of uh, pandemic and uh, being in that theater while this crazy shit was happening and Dolby, you know, cinema was just uh, an incredible experience. One of the best things of the year for me. Okay. <laughs> That's all you got, Josh. I didn't see it, but I'm glad you liked it so much. And it you haven't like it seen Godzilla vs. Kong yet, Jason? Where have you, do you been? Know, do you know why I no, didn't Jason, see it? No, Jason, don't, don't see it. It's not worth seeing. <laughs> the, reason, the reason I didn't see it was because it was at that time where, like, are we going to movie theaters? Are we not going to movie theaters? Stuff like that. And it was just too much for me. Yeah, it was pre-vaccination, Dave. You're talking about how you wouldn't go see the kid detective. Well, and you had to. No, no, no. This was also pre-vaccination. I got vaccinated two weeks later, went and saw Godzilla vs. Kong. You know? Two weeks later than Godzilla vs. Kong? Yeah, or... it was still in theaters. Oh, okay. yeah. I didn't. Okay, I didn't. So I didn't break. You uh, didn't see it the week it opened. No, is what you're no, saying. no. Okay. Yeah. I, all right. I, all right. I, I planned all my vaccinations in in okay. time to be able to see it before it left theaters. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. All right. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I weirdly, I thought this movie could have been more ridiculous. Like there was too much people talking. There's always not, people talking in these damn movies. There's always people talking, but they could have. <laughs> Had less of that, and there was whole subplots that were like unnecessary and like irrelevant to the ultimate outcome of the movie. Mm. Um, but there was a hero who was a podcaster, so you know, there's that shout too. Out to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just amazed that Dave, because this is your number two, I assume that this means that somehow Mortal Kombat did not make your list. I thought that would be right up there as well. Sadly, it's actually sitting right next to uh, Shiva Baby. So. Okay. <laughs> Good comparison right there. All right. Number one, Josh, what do you got? Well, my number one is the same as my number one from earlier this year and is a movie that I saw in March uh, during the weird period where they decided that 2020 just continued mm -hmm. into 2021 uh, because of, for awards consideration purposes. So this is a movie that was sort of uh, submitted for awards consideration at that time. And no one no one took it up on it, but I did. <laughs> it's called French Exit from Azazel Jacobs. And watching this movie in March, I was like, that's the best movie of the year. And I was that I stuck with that. You know, I it's an amazing, brilliant performance from Michelle Pfeiffer, which 
really awards wise, regardless of anything else, I felt like she should have gotten more attention for how good she is as this aging socialite who uh, is a widow and discovers that all of the money that she has relied on for her entire life because she's never really worked. Uh, she's been sort of ensconced in this bubble, bubble of privilege for her entire life. The money is about to run out. And she decides to face that by being even more decadent and spending the money lavishly. She and her son, played by Lucas Hedges, move to France and they live in a, a friend's apartment. And they sort of amass this weird, quirky community of people who just glom onto them. Um, whether that's uh, oh, this woman who is weirdly like a fan of Michelle Pfeiffer's character, uh, played by Valerie Mahaffey in a hilarious, also really award-worthy performance, or a psychic played by Danielle McDonald, uh, Tracy Letts, who plays her... Uh, you know, a late husband uh, returns as the voice of their cat that he has possessed. So it's got all these weird, like magical, realist, whimsical elements. It's so dryly funny and also really profound about this mother-son relationship and about what regrets people have at the end of their lives. I loved everything about this movie. And I know, I think this and maybe John and the Hole are the two movies on my list that most people seem to have not liked. Um, but I just found it incredibly endearing, and it's it's fantastic, if nothing else, than for Michelle Pfeiffer. So that's still my number one, is French Exit. I liked it a lot. Not as much as you did, but uh, I, I think it's it's really good as well. And, you know, much like my honorable mention, The Kid Detective, it got done dirty by the uh, various release date whatevers that have happened over the past year. Yeah, I mean, and I think it did come out in theaters around like February, March, but that was still a time when people really weren't going sure. to theaters. Yeah. And so then it just kind of makes its own quick exit mm. um, and is on, I think it's on stars now if you have stars, but also available for, you know, rental on, on VOD platforms and stuff. Jason, did you see French Exit? I have not, Dave, but I would love to. All right. All right. So I think you might like it, Jason. I think he will too. I definitely think he will. But uh, let's go to Jason's number one. My number one was a real surprise to me. I didn't expect it to be my number one. But then again, no one had expected it to be good when it was first announced. It is West Side Story, Steven Spielberg. Uh, this was the remake that wasn't supposed to be remade, but they treated it with such care and did so well um, that it's just amazing. Like from the opening shot, that opening shot, like I was like, oh, dude, this dude's on his game right here it's it's just it's a uh this is a really cool um you know uh scoping jib that goes over the entire crumbling neighborhood i thought the performances were good the singing was great and um i just couldn't believe how good this movie turned out i mean obviously i'm a fan of the original and i thought this did it justice and some people say even improved on it. So I will agree with that. And I got to shout out, not just the camera work, the lighting design is incredible in this thing. And um, they really worked hard to give each dance number its own feel, each song its own feel. Yeah, I liked it too. And I think maybe it was slightly hurt by the fact that I watched the original for the first time, maybe less than a week before. And so it was like, oh, this again. Um, but yeah, it's it's really good. And I think the, especially the staging of America, which is my favorite song in the in the show is fantastic. The way he opens that up into the whole street and it becomes this much bigger number than the way it is in the original. 
I haven't seen it yet. I was supposed to see it yesterday, but my uh, my mom, who I was going to go with, got sick, and so we're waiting on a COVID test. But uh, hopefully going to see it soon, though. I, I'm looking forward to it. Yes, we hope she feels better. And uh, Josh, how about some of those shots, like when the gangs walk into that secluded warehouse and we're just doing a bird's eye view and you see their shadows come in first? Like, re- really, like, he thought out everything in this thing. Yeah, that's a great shot and really emphasizes the way that they're sort of, uh, you know, similar from just from different sides of the same coin. And you see those shadows come in and they kind of merge with each other. And yeah, that's a great shot. Absolutely. It's nice to see Spielberg, who has been up and down, you know, in the last decade or so, just just hit one out of the park here. Yeah, I mean, he clearly had passion for this and is something that he wanted to do for a long time. So put and, put his uh, all in. Shout out to Tony Kushner, too. Yeah, good screenplay. Always interesting to see anything that Spielberg's going to do, but uh, yeah. So my number one is Licorice Pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson's latest film. The only movie I've given five stars to this year, and I think it 100% deserves it. It's just absolute movie magic. Um, It's not quite a romance. It's not just a coming-of-age story. Uh, Josh mentioned earlier that it's kind of shapeless a little bit, and I think part of that is part of its charm as well it just is absolutely a hangout throughout all of these stories that kind of feel like memories just kind of playing out and it's all held together by these two just incredible lead performances by Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman as well as an incredible soundtrack but then also all of the little small performances little one scene almost cameos like you mentioned earlier josh bradley cooper tom waits uh, harriet sansom harris sean penn all these people oh the haim family the rest of her sisters and parents who are just incredible yeah i think her mom didn't even have a line she yeah just sits there and <laughs> She's adds so good. To the you're a big fan of that <laughs> so good uh but yeah i mean th- this movie i i wrote on letterbox like and it's the truth. My face hurt by the end of it. I was just smiling the whole movie long. And uh, it's it's so much lighter than his other stuff, but one of his best movies. And I love it so much. And I look forward to watching it over and over again over the years. Well, I'm just happy your face hurt yourself and not us because it usually does. Boom, your face. Oh, Nailed your face with your face. Fair. Your face. Absolutely fair. Yeah, we've talked about licorice <laughs> pizza. It's very good. We all like it. Yeah. It's good. I agree. And uh, I I knew that was coming, Dave, because, you know, I've seen all your comments on it, but uh, a worthy pick. Agreed. I mean, I'm glad you had such a lovely time. But the fact that it's your only five star movie of the year goes back to my point about just how uh, the quality of films just weren't as good this year. Well, I didn't even give any movie five stars and French Exit was the only movie I gave four stars to. But I think that's just about being a tough grade. I think it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column Josh. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, let's talk about some of our favorite scenes in movies. This is something for everyone listening that we do every year. Uh, When we finish up this list, we talk about our three favorite scenes. They can be from movies we just talked about, or they can be from other ones that we want to give a shout out to. Uh, And we'll just do all three together uh, one at a time. So Josh, what are your three favorite scenes from movies this year? All right. Well, I'm going to start with something extremely obscure uh, from a movie called Slow Machine, which was this weird sort of surrealistic mumblecore thing that uh, I barely even had heard about, but got a, some 
every person who championed this seemed to be like really into it. And it's, it's an uneven film that was uh, shot over the course of like a number of years and uh, has a lot of weird elements together. But the one thing I'm going to pick, you could almost just remove from the film entirely and watch like as his own little short. It features Chloe Sevigny uh, playing possibly herself, but definitely a person named Chloe who is an actress. And she is having like brunch or something with the main character and describing this experience that she had on an audition. And it starts out and the main character is like, oh, what, what, is that? what are you up to lately? Oh, I had this audition. And she starts telling this story that just gets weirder and weirder as it goes on. And she's talking about this audition came because I got this like note that I didn't know who it was from. And it told me to go to this warehouse and inside this warehouse, it was like entering a portal and I forgot every line that I thought of. And then it all came back to me in a rush of magic. And it's just, it's, it's, it sounds stupid as I'm describing it. But the way that Chloe Sevigny just 100% commits to this insane monologue and then never shows up in the movie again was, was fascinating <laughs> to me. So it is a very strange film that I would recommend watching called Slow Machine. I think it's on Mubi. Uh, I watched it on a screener. So it's not super accessible. But if you like surreal mumble, mumblecore stuff, check it out. Or if not, just watch that one scene. So that's my first pick. That sounds great, <laughs> actually. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, slightly more conventional, uh, my next couple of things, um, we mentioned in the Heights and there were a lot of great musical numbers in musicals this year. Um, I mean, I just talked about America and West Side Story, the 96,000 number in, in the Heights, the song about someone potentially having won the lottery. Um, the way that John Chu, the director expands that from what you might see on stage and makes every use of this large space and this massive cast. And he does it in this sort of like Busby Berkeley style as they're at this public pool and you got like synchronized swimming and the way the camera moves around. To me, that is like the epitome of what you want out of a musical number in a movie. So I understand that not everybody loved everything about In the Heights and it is very long as we've talked about many things, but that to me was like the encapsulation of what's great about that movie and about movie musicals. Agreed. Yeah, it's the best part of the movie for sure. Yes. And I like that movie overall. And like I said, that's it's it's close to my top 10, but I know it's, you know, not everyone's favorite. Uh, and lastly, I'll mention something from a movie that was on Jason's list, The Power of the Dog, the sort of threatening uh, duet between Kirsten Dunst's character playing the piano and Benedict Cumberbatch playing the banjo and the way that encapsulates the dynamic between their characters by playing music and this sort of call and response. And it starts out and you think it's a nice moment of connection, like, oh, he heard her playing piano and now he's going to join her. And you realize that he's using his banjo playing as sort of a way to threaten her. Uh, I just love how that plays out without any dialogue and they never comment on it later. And so that moment. From well, the power of they the do comment on it. He comments on it just by whistling the music repetitively. But sure, you're, sure. you're, you're right. You're True. right. And Josh, two points about music like this has been a great year for music musicals music documentaries music and movies absolutely i yeah. i agree yeah cool that's great great picks what do you got jason well my, i go for like bigger themes that i see but that are also scenes right so my first moment is fights on buses uh where we saw yeah. two and if you had told me in the year the best at the beginning, there would be a fight on a bus in a Marvel movie, and it wouldn't be the best fight on a bus. I'd be like, whatever, dude. But Shang-Chi had a very <laughs> good fight on the bus. But as Josh mentioned earlier, 
the fight on the bus in Nobody is like one of the great fight scenes of the last five years. So good. Uh, you got to see it. Watch Bob Odenkirk take out a whole gang of fools on the bus there. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And the, the Shang-Chi, Shang-Chi one is very good. And I hadn't seen, there was a, uh, an article on Slate, maybe. It was like, a real bus driver explains how the fight scene in Shang-Chi would not have worked or something. It's so stupid. <laughs> but uh, it's a very fun, uh, obviously unrealistic scene. <laughs> Two, we just talked about music moves the soul. We're talking about all the different things. Dave and I will be doing the documentary picks later uh, this month. Uh, Summer of Soul, Velvet Underground. We talked about the music box stuff. We talked about these big musicals here. I definitely teared up in Summer of Soul when the Fifth Dimension talked about how they didn't fit in black music or white music. And this was a seminal moment for them. And you saw their performance and how they were accepted. What a great documentary. Will definitely be in my picks for top five documentaries. And that moment really was transcendent for me. Yeah. Summer of Soul was great. Absolutely. Probably end up on my list as well. And yeah, that was a great moment in it. Right. And it's a, a theme, I think, that you don't expect from that movie, the way they talk about it mm-hmm. from that perspective. Um, so yeah, I like that too. Cool. And my last one, now this movie would have been on my top 10. As you know, I had some trouble watching it recently. The Green Knight is, <laughs> if you're a fan of Game of Thrones, like, uh, and I had technical difficulties. I can't wait to watch the end of it, you know. But if you're a fan of Game of Thrones, you got to see this thing. But it's also such a beautiful looking movie. It is incredible looking. And there's this scene where Gawain and Lady Winifred go out to this lake or this pond or whatever. And he has to help her find her head or whatever. And just the landscape and these two, it is like a moving picture. It's like, a, I couldn't believe just what a stunning shot it was. And there's so many in this movie. We talked about Power of the Dog and just the use of landscapes this year and Pig. But this one shot was the most beautiful shot I've seen all year. Yeah, it's probably the best looking movie this year. I would totally agree with that. Yeah, it's amazing what they do. And and most of it, it with practical sets and, and makeup and everything, it just, it does, it does look amazing. And that's a fascinating moment in that film. I think there's so many moments in that movie where it's just like this ethereal, this like in-between space between like a myth and reality. And that's something that's done really well there. Yeah. It's this idea of now, you know, film used to influence TV and now TV's influencing film. And you could see that Game of Thrones thing, but it just was almost like they were, they were paint mapping it as we went. But it, like you said, it's a real, it's real. It's, I couldn't believe how uh, majestic it looked. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Well, I'll go to my three scenes, and two of them are from movies from my top 10, one of them from another movie. Um, Of course, I got to start with the whole jail sequence in Malignant, uh, as well as the chair throw, which I made a little joke with my top five scenes of the year video. Uh, But yeah, that whole last 20 minutes of the movie, once shit hits the fan and everything goes crazy and insane... um, yeah, it just the the choreography of the way that all of that takes place. And again, Jason hasn't seen it. I don't want to uh, spoil it too much for him, but it uh, it's just some incredible action within the world of a horror movie. But it, it is a straight up action sequence by all means and is incredibly done, I think. And what is the name? The, the contortionist who plays uh, Gabriel, the the I should have wrote, wrote down the name. Yeah, but yeah, she does an incredible job. Yeah. Yeah. So my uh my second one uh from Godzilla versus Kong uh when Kong 
his dislocated shoulder, he snaps it back into place, much like Riggs from Lethal Weapon 2, uh, so he can go kick some ass. Awesome. That is just, I, me and my friend Will went to the theater for it for that, you know, first day back after all that time. We were just screaming in the theater, like, like talk about Spider-Man No Way Home. When he pulled that shit, we were going nuts, you know? I, I, you know what? I have to appreciate your insane dedication to that movie. <laughs> and then my third one, a movie that uh, was a little bit of a letdown, although I did enjoy it overall, but not as good as I was hoping for. Uh, House of Gucci from Ridley Scott. The scene in the parking garage as Al Pacino uh, as Aldo and uh, Jared Leto as Paolo are trying to find Paolo's car after he... Uh, picks up Aldo from prison and just pure desperation on Jared Leto's face as he's trying to find his car and hitting the horn thing to make it honk and trying to find the car in the garage and Pacino's face and just disbelief how he could have raised such an idiot son (laughs) is just so funny. I was just absolutely dying. And that Jared Leto, I mean, he's Jared Leto, love him or hate him, but is so funny in this moment. Yeah, I feel like that movie would have been better if it leaned into more of that like comedic absurdity. Yes. Uh, instead of just like bullet point biopic stuff, which is mostly what it is. Yeah, I agree. Did you see that, Jason? No. Uh, okay, you got to watch House of Gucci. Listen, no, you don't got to watch it. <laughs> I feel like I've seen a lot that we've talked about, but uh, as you know, you you goons in the Las Vegas Film Critics Society just don't give me the accent. <laughs> This again, huh? Yeah, we we force you to have to go leave and uh, locate the Green Knight elsewhere. Go on a quest. Really, I would say thematically, yes. your efforts to watch the Green Knight are are mm. right in line with everything that that movie is about. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, maybe I'll find so, some beautiful landscapes then. On my yes, you will. Yes, you, you will. will. So before we wrap this up, I do want to just uh, give a shout out to our Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces group and list off a few of the things that people brought up as their favorite movies of the year. Uh, Just a few of them that we didn't talk about here today. Uh, And we'll just briefly comment on them. But uh, Joe Black brought up Ghostbusters Afterlife, which I thought was fun. I didn't like it as much as a lot of other people did. What about you guys? No. Joe Black is wrong. Really? I feel like not to heart. Joe Black... Very talented. Uh, he's a f- filmmaker. Congratulations to Joe Black for his feature Natasha Hall this year, which screened in Vegas, won some awards at festivals. We appreciate it. Go Joe. Which may be screening again uh, soon. We'll we'll announce that on the uh, in the group. But uh, and that's awesome. <laughs> what do you, what about Jason? Do you see Ghostbusters Afterlife? I feel like yeah, you like it. I'll wait. That one's one that I'll wait till it comes out on you know my uh, one of my yeah. streamers. So. I didn't love it. Yeah, either. you you. You might like watching it with your daughter. It's 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 not. T- I didn't hate it the way that some people hated it, but it definitely to me was just completely missed the point of what it should have been, mm. and it is a poor version of what it what it is. So we had two people bring up Annette, both Chris Cranock and George Hannah Wilson. Uh, Annette is a very strange movie. Um, there are things about it I loved, but overall, I didn't love it necessarily. What about you guys? I didn't see it because it sounded like the kind of thing I would hate. I don't mm. even know it. It's the the movie with the Sparks music, and uh, it stars Adam Driver and oh. Mary Cotillard. You mean Sparks? Yeah. The documentary of the Sparks Brothers? No, no. but that's no. also been brought up. Yeah, no, I know <laughs> so, that. I'll have to watch it. So, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Chris Cranock also brought up Memoria, um, which I have not watched yet. Either of you guys? 
No. Well, that's one. It's so weird that I don't know how Chris Cranock saw it, but that mm-hmm. has that, you know, somewhat controversial release pattern where allegedly it's going to play in one theater at a time and never be released on home video. Yeah. But then, of course, they sent critics, screeners. Jason, uh, Dave and I both, I think, have this at home on yeah. the DVD, which is like antithetical to the way that the distributor claims that it should be watched. So whatever. Yeah, some, I didn't some weird thing going on with that whole release pattern. So I don't know. But yeah, it seems like a lot of... Uh, movie nerds have found ways to watch it so yeah I, i'm curious to see it i've seen one of other of his uh films uh uncle boon me who can recall his past lives and uh it's unique yeah so i'm not sure how i would feel about memoria but it's certainly not like anything else chris also brought up the tragedy of Macbeth, which i saw and i am simply not smart enough to fully appreciate but it is a very beautiful looking movie so. yeah it is the, the 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 set design and cinematography in that movie are just amazing and denzel washington is great as Macbeth in the oh, yeah. film it's really a powerful performance from him i agree Absolutely. dave you are not smart oh sorry <laughs> <I missed that. laughs> And then our buddy Chad Clinton Freeman brought up uh, three movies that we didn't bring up in this conversation. Of course, one of which is Zack Snyder's Justice League. Well, look um, at that. Hey, guys, my computer's <laughs> about to die and just at the right time. So I'll let you guys finish this conversation on your own. Thanks for having me, kids. Josh, plug our stuff. I will do that. <laughs> also, Wrath of Man and Last Night in Soho, uh, both of which I felt were kind of disappointing. But, yeah, but you know, yeah, it's 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 Chad. We yeah. love <laughs> we you, love we Chad. love Chad, or you 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 love Chad here at the Piecing It Together podcast. <laughs> I I love Chad also. Yes, of um, course. But I think like Joe Black, their taste is unique. Yeah, and that's it. That's uh, everything else was talked about by one of our picks, or at least scenes, or various other segments of this uh, episode. So that does it, Josh. You want to uh, tell people where to find awesome movie here? Yeah, Jason appears in the entirety of every Awesome Movie Year episode as opposed to this. Uh, AwesomeMovieYear.com, Awesome Movie uh, Year on Facebook and Instagram, and Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Check us out there. And uh, yeah, we are in the midst of our sort of anniversary, we're calling it, season. It's our 10th season, so we are celebrating the rich history of awesome movie year by looking back at all the different years that we have covered and picking out one film from each of those years that we didn't cover and uh and talking about those so the whole spectrum of film history that we've covered is coming up in this season it's a fun thing for us to do to look back awesome well uh thank you as always for joining me here and uh we're gonna have to uh see what is Happening with Jason to see what his final thoughts are, but uh, he's he's gone. He's long gone. <laughs> Jason's final thought is, screw you guys. I'm leaving. I've had enough. This is going to be a fun one to edit. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Good luck with that. All of us, really. I think people, people will be listening to this episode at the end of 2022 by the yeah. time you finish editing it. At least it's recorded. Yes. <laughs> Hi, this is Wax Tracks Records here on 2909 South Decada. We buy all your old 45s, your old albums, any type of music memorabilia. Also, we sell music memorabilia, albums, CDs, and a lot. 
Come on down to Wax Tracks, 2909 South Decatur, or give me a call at 702-362-4300. Thank you very much. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation about our top 10 favorite movies of 2021. Thanks to Josh Bell and Jason Harris for joining me for that one again. And uh, make sure you are subscribed to Awesome Movie Year, where their 10th season has just begun. It's a special retrospective season, looking back at the previous nine seasons and filling in some blanks. And uh, we got a lot of great movies lined up for that. So make sure to check that out. And also, uh, most, well... Maybe not all of Josh's picks. Josh picked some pretty uh, random picks there. But a lot of the movies we talked about during this conversation, uh, we have done Piecing It Together episodes on. So make sure to go back and check out those episodes after you watch the movies if you haven't already. So uh, lots of Piecing It Together episodes for you to check out. Also, uh, I guess I should tell you, as always, uh, you know, if you like what we do here on the show, make sure to rate and review us. You can do it on Apple Podcasts, now on Spotify as well. Also, uh, Podchaser, Good Pods, anywhere where you can leave a review and a rating. We'd really appreciate your five-star and a little uh, review, a little written feedback review. We, we really love those as well. You could also just get in touch with me wherever. There's a contact form on the website. You could email me. My email's out there. It's in the show notes, all that stuff. Uh, yeah, get in touch. I love hearing from people about what they think about the show. Let us know what you think about our picks for the top ten. And if you're ever interested in joining me for an episode of Piecing It Together, get in touch with me for that as well. You can also follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. We really appreciate it when you get involved with the conversation. So join us over there or on social media, on uh, Twitter or whatever. And uh, I, I love getting that back and forth going. So definitely let us know what you think about the show. And uh, don't forget about the Patreon, produced by David Rosen. Lots of great content over there. So let's close this thing out with a piece of music. And... Uh, these movies we talked about today are uh, what we would consider some of the greatest movies of 2021, especially Malignant. Um, but, uh, I will play a track uh, that I released last year as a single called Destined for Greatness. That seems like a good pick for this. So I'm going to play the track Destined for Greatness, which is a single and is available on Spotify and iTunes and all those places. So you can go check it out over there if you like it. Um, and we'll be back with more Piecing It Together real soon.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.